a good writer makes sure that the reader feels satisfied with the with the narrative and with the way the story flows it's not about you anymore it's not about you you are the vehicle you have done the research but you need to write it for the recipient the recipient is the one who needs to enjoy this it's not about you while i was an editor at the wall street journal i had the honor of working with many fine reporters one of my favorites though was vera sprother Vera was one of those rare journalists who takes the utmost care and pride in everything she produces and who always sets a supremely high bar for her output whether it's in the researching, reporting or writing of stories. She's one of those rare journalists who doesn't just know how to pump out newsworthy stories to deadlines but one who instinctively understands the finer details of prose, things like rhythm, drama, tone and narrative elegance. After leaving the journal, Elvira has gone on to write her first book in partnership with a co-author. They've called the book Flow Generation, a survival guide for our unpredictable lives. And it's a brilliant account of the way the so-called gig economy is impacting our society. The phenomenon where people have moved away from the idea of pursuing a job for life and toward the idea of doing a multitude of different types of jobs to earn income. I've invited Vera onto the Alchemy of Writing podcast today to share her journey from being a distinguished journalist at one of the world's biggest newspapers to becoming a groundbreaking non-fiction author. I'm sure that hearing about her experiences as a first-class writer and editor will be extremely enlightening for my listeners. Vera, welcome to the Elite Writers Lounge. Thank you, Shani. It's an honor to speak with you today, and thanks for the very nice intro. I didn't expect to be uh, um, to be lauded so much. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome, uh, Vera. You've you've clearly had a long and distinguished writing career as a journalist, including, if I recall, working for various leading Ger German newspapers before uh, moving to Sydney and working for the Wall Street Journal. But I'm curious, did you always feel that you were a writer in your soul? Uh, this is a good question. I probably would say that I always felt um, a very strong affection to the written word and I haven't fallen into it. It's more, it's matured. I do remember when I was a child, I was always reading a lot and uh, my dad, my parents are both teachers. My dad at some point in his career worked for a publishing group where they wrote school books. Um, and he came home from one of his trips. I think he went to Berlin at the time or Frankfurt. And he came back and he brought me a big book. And it was a book about language. But it wasn't an ordinary, boring, theoretical book. It was a book full of stories and illustrations about the fascination um, of, of putting words together and structural elements of sentences. And I remember I was so immersed in it. So there were things in it about reading words forwards and backwards, words like mm -hmm. Anna and Otto. Um, and uh, it, it, it was a book that started with four children being bored one afternoon and a little um, ghost appeared from out of the radio and started telling them all these stories about how you can create images with words. And um, and I love this. It's, I, I remember keep going, I kept going back to this book and um, I loved grotesques, you know, um, poems that did not make sense because the words 
conveyed one meaning, but then it was almost uh, contradicting itself. Mm. So there are poems in German. I can still recite one. I won't because your readers won't understand German, most likely. Um, but uh, it went along the lines of giving you one sentence in a positive way and then turning it into negative. So a car silently sped around the corner and um, or slowly sped around the corner, stuff like this. I always had a fascination for this. I love dense, succinct writing. And I started then writing for a school newspaper. And when I was 17, had my first newspaper job and uh, have done this always since. Yeah, that's fascinating. So what, what made you kind of choose journalism as a, as a, as a career? Was it, was it some particular thing that inspired you? I think I, I enjoy people. I love people's stories and getting to the heart of things, learning about how people live their lives and how other people in other countries and, and around us um, get by, make do with what they have, um, create successes and get out of failure. It was more an opportunity that, that came to me after writing for the school newspaper that a family friend suggested I could do the local carnival reporting. So carnival is very big in Germany and they, it's this, you know, street, street festival where everyone gets like really drunk and um, <laughs> they need uh, street reporters, someone who is happy to um, mingle with the drunken people on the road and uh, celebrate with them and then write some uh, small town gazette story about it. And, and that was my, my entry ticket into it. I said, yeah, why not? You know, I'm happy to celebrate and get drunk with the people and, and write about it. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, do you think to be a good journalist, you do have to have that, that kind of fascination with, with people and their stories? I think you, you do have to have a curiosity for life, for, for, for all facets of life. Um, and um, I do remember, even at the Wall Street Journal, some of the most accomplished writers, um, the A-head writers, they told us humans are weird. And that was their angle and their entry, entry ticket to every story. Just explain what an A-head is for our listeners. Uh, they are, um, you know, the Wall Street Journal is a very um, news-driven, scoop-driven a newspaper where it's all about um, helping readers, I guess, in a, put simply, helping readers make more money by giving them um, information that no one else has yet. Yeah. So it's it's a lot about economics and the bigger picture and um, internal decision making on a broader scale. And the AHEAD was the the one article per day in that newspaper that deliberately told a story that wasn't as relevant for that decision-making process was it like a little relief from the um the very deep and serious um yeah. political and economic reporting they and used to call it the funny page the funny page well it was still it was still kind of serious um because it, it talked about you know things that humans did and funny things you know about uh, I remember our New Zealand reporter, she wrote something about seniors doing uh, hip hop. Um, I can't remember. What, like... Yeah, for a Las Vegas dance competition. <laughs> These things, fantastic. you know, just where you go, this is wacky. Or, mm. you know, our bureau chief wrote a, an ad about hip flasks that they're still in fashion. And you go, who on earth would still use a hip <laughs> flask? And it is it is that curiosity that sparks the these really intriguing stories when you observe something 
Mm. And, and, and I remember you particularly, because there were two different types of journalists where we worked. Some of them really liked the hard news, fast, bash out what's happened and just quickly let people know. And then there were other journalists like you, I think, who loved crafting a story, like telling a kind of something that had depth and dimension and took a little bit more time and was a bit more thoughtful. Um, is that right? Is that fair? Yeah, that's probably true. I don't know. I, I, it's interesting that you say that because I tend to beat myself up for not being as much of a hard news reporter as other people are. And I'm sure, you know, whoever is listening now, you may find that in yourself. You know, sometimes you go, why am I not that news driven person? Why does it take so much longer for me to, to come up with a strong narrative? And what I learned is that we all have different I think innate talents. Uh, for me, it is this that comes naturally. I, I'm very intrigued by the depth of um, people's lives and decisions. It's I'm not a fast, fast writer person. I want to understand what's behind it. I want to dig dig deeper. I'm I come from magazine journalism. I, I've mm. tried lots of different things, but the the feature stories give you that space to dig deep, and I find that fascinating. I it, it is a, a unifying element that you find when you dig deep. You understand that we all are fighting similar um, issues in our lives. We all have the same despair, the, the same pain, the same grief, the same love. Um, and when you find that, it makes it makes it very interesting to to go be behind the surface, dig deep, and find out what actually drives human behavior. Um, and I found it always, for me, it always was a simple decision um, for others, not so much when they, when they saw me working in economics and in finance, finance reporting, um, they would then ask me, but why would you become an economic journalist? And I would say, but the economics or whatever we do in, in our economy is not about numbers. It's about people. It's about us. Mm. And, um, and that's something that I still, I still treasure to to this day. You know, I do like people's stories. Yeah, and it's the way that they wrote these kind of stories in the journal was really, really good, wasn't it? I mean, you really first, you know, you had anecdotes that made you feel like you were there among the people or in that situation. But then there was that skill of of bringing in the context and, and adding details and things um, just to get a rich story because you don't just have a story full of anecdotes about interesting people, right? It's got to have a bit more gravity than that. Absolutely. It needs to be relatable. And it is, um, it is a skill. So whatever you whatever you read in the newspapers, often it bores you because you can't relate to it. It sounds like something very far away in um, Kyrgyzstan or Azerbaijan or Mali. And you just look at these conflict countries and you go, what, why would this affect me? And that was a question that we always asked ourselves, you as well, you know, we, we look at stories and we go, so why should I read this? The why is very important. You need to, you need to find the thesis and, and bring it back to the reader's reality. And often it is, um, you know, it, it could be that it affects um, the political stability of an entire region. Or, you know, we found this, for example, with oil price stories, very boring, you know, you just go, why should I report on the oil market? Mm. Well, Look at countries like Venezuela, because ultimately what happens when there's volatility in the oil price, it can affect, you know, uh, the mothers who all of a sudden are unable to buy the nappies for their children. 
Um, and, you know, it has all these ripple effects. And that's the fascinating bit. When you understand that everything that happens around you has a ripple effect and it can always um, affect the reader's reality. And your job as a good writer or as a journalist in particular is to make that relationship clearer. Um, and your own evolution as a writer, I mean, obviously working at the Wall Street Journal was like, you know, towards the pinnacle of your of your journalism career. Um, do you remember how you got better and better and better as a writer? Do you remember any points at which it kind of became clear to you that I'm becoming better as a writer? And what was and how how and why did that happen to you? <laughs> it's a good question, because it is. Um, I mean, you were my editor at the time. And you're very rigorous. You have such rigor, Shani, and you're very um, you're very structured in your thinking, which is what I I really learn to appreciate. Um, I think as writers, we 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 can fall into the trap of thinking we know it all. I know how to write a story. It's my personal story. I know best how to tell it. Where well, we don't, there's always someone who can give you a good pointer. Um, we become story blind after a while. And we may overlook something very important and, and, and a structural element that is missing in our story where we haven't um, created a nice narrative loop or we haven't explained something or we take a detour. happens all the time because we, we research a lot and we, um, we know more than the average reader and we take it for granted. And then we, you know, we start talking about all that. We, we keep waffling on about everything we know instead of staying focused on what the reader needs to know. And, yeah. and that rigor of being concise and very succinct in the way you, you, you structure a story uh, and understanding what you know and then the gap is what the reader knows. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's what I've learned there. And it's, 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 I, I guess people who haven't been journalists um, for, for newspapers like that wouldn't necessarily understand just how painful it can be from to craft Incredibly. a story from beginning Incredibly. to end. Right? It's like it's it's pretty rough. <laughs> and also because um, it takes time, um, you 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 gotta have the patience. And unfortunately, in in today's online news reporting. I'm afraid because I'm still working in, in an online news environment um, at a news desk, it's very fast and people don't take the time, not everyone, but in many cases, we don't get enough time to do that thorough reporting that will actually create a strong story that makes a difference. We read so much every day that is actually, you know, whether we read it or not, doesn't really matter. It doesn't, you know, we, we may easily forget. If I ask you, can you remember any good story you've you've read in the last week? You may struggle. You know, yeah. there's only very few distinct stories that stand out. And they're usually the ones that have taken a long time to craft. Um, mm. It makes a difference. Every word makes a difference. And tell us the process of, of crafting, crafting that. Part of it is about the research that goes into it. Part of it is about the, the interviewing or the reporting that goes into it. And part of it is about the writing of it <laughs> yes and how much well how well, what's the hardest part for you um well i tell you i answer your first question first the the it starts with a question it always starts with a question that sparks your curiosity first right you need to ask why why is this so mm. you must be intrigued yourself otherwise there's no point you will never last if you're not interested in it yourself you will never have the patience to see it through mm. so what is it that sparked your interest in that story why did you 
think this is worth reporting? Why do you want to find out more about it? And then, and then you branch out from there. So once you have that guiding question that guides your own curiosity, you can then yeah, like ask. Like a so burning curiosity, really. It needs to be burning. It needs to be so burning that you you lose all your shyness. You, you call up people. You just you, you just want to find out. You become almost like a detective. You need to want to find the truth, the core of what's going on. And it can be it can be just something that you you see, and that doesn't make sense. And you go these people tell me this as an explanation and the other people tell me that as an explanation, it doesn't seem plausible. It doesn't make sense mm. to me. When I use my common sense, I don't get it. What are they telling me here? You know, and the company has a statement and the government has a statement and your friend has a statement. I don't know. <laughs> and it doesn't make sense. And you, you got to trust your instinct. If it doesn't make sense to you, it most likely doesn't make sense to the average reader. So you, this is, this becomes this burning inquiry then. And then, um, and then it's it's relatively easy to to go and create a hierarchy of guiding questions for the story, so you know what's the overarching um, purpose. What do you want to find out? And then you go. So, what else do I need to know? I need to know who was there. You know how many people. Then you go through all the fact questions, and mm -hmm. then the next bit, and that's the hardest, the harder bit. How do I get the answers? Who do I call? <laughs> Yeah. Um, and how do I, how much research do I need to do before I call that person? You can't just cold call someone and expect them to tell you everything. In most cases, you would have to have done a lot of reading to be prepared enough to ask the right questions and to see through their, their, their lies. Some people don't well, want they're to, spin. they spin, they, they, they don't want to reveal the truth, obviously. And they were, they were try to silence you with an easy explanation and you can only see through it if you've done your research if you've done a lot of reading so um what i learned from my journalism trainer because i i was at a school of journalism um and did that program for one and a half years as a cadet journalist and he always told me and i liked it it's a good a good tip to start from the outside in so you start with the least important person and get them to talk and tell you what they think. And then you narrow it down. And I guess the most important person is at the center of the investigation. It becomes an investigation. So mm. let's create a, um, a scenario. Imagine you heard that there is a corruption scandal. Someone's tipped you off. You heard something about corruption. Or you, you may have even noticed that some numbers don't add up somewhere and you just want to find out. Of course, you can't call the person you suspect of having done any corruption. Right, you start right. from the outside in. And, and that is that requires enormous people skills and psychological skills to get people to open up to you um, and to earn their trust. I remember doing a big story about guns, you know, that, that wood chipping company, um, which now is defunct. Um, but it, back in the days when I arrived in Australia, I think it was 2007, There was a big uproar around this company. Environmentalists were going crazy over them logging old growth forest in Tasmania. And um, I spent about a week in Tasmania and I first listened to all the ac activists. I, I drove around with a forestry expert for three days. He showed me all the sites. He talked from a personal level, from his experience. I spoke to... Um, accountants to people who look at their books i spoke to mums and cafe owners and anyone in their you know in the wider periphery of 
of the company. And only when I had spent four days of speaking to all these people, I approached Guns myself and the forestry department, basically with all my ammunition in my bag. Mm. Um, <laughs> and then I was able to, to actually get a lot of good statements from them. Um, and and this is this is what we need to do. So, you know, coming back to your question, um, the hardest bit is finding the people who open, who open, who start to open up to you and who start to tell you what is actually going on behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. And some some kind of related point that I had when in order to get really good interviews, you know, that can be quite tough because people, when you ask them questions, they can end up giving you really boring answers that are not great for your story. Do you have any method of kind of uh, trying to get people to say things in an interesting way, in a way that's quotable? Um, I tell you, I tell you something funny. So it, it can be quite frustrating when you interview someone who just doesn't have the charisma or the ability to explain something in a colorful way as mm. we want it. As a writer, we always want color and we want excitement and drama in a quote. These are the strongest quotes we need to use in our stories. Right. Um, a friend of mine is a, used to be a foreign correspondent in Japan and he came up with this story about Japanese people loving whale meat and that they're all, you know, that it's a delicatessen there in their country and that they're all into it. But no one really wanted to give him the quote. And <laughs> we were joking about suggestive questions because ultimately he was doing, which is a big no-no as, as an honorable journalist, he was creating suggestive questions. But would you agree that you love eating whale meat? And that person would just say, yes. yes. And then he would rephrase it and create a quote out of it, which is, you know, absolutely not what you should be doing. Mm. Um, no, what you should be doing is you just keep asking and asking and asking yeah. um, in, different, in different manners until that person reveals something surprising. Right. And I, and I, I often found like when I was reporting for Bloomberg, for, for example, during the global financial crisis, you know, all the markets are, are going haywire and everything. And you want a quote for your story to talk about, you know, how the markets are going crazy. And, you know, if you just ask the person you're interviewing, if you ask them, you know, oh, just a broad generic question, like, what do you think's going on? Then generally, they come to it with a bit more of a kind of in a long-winded way, which doesn't lead to a good quote. But if you if you approach them with some of the drama in yourself about what's happening, and wow, isn't this crazy? What's going on? I mean, the markets are doing this. It's like people are are selling that, mm. you know. That and and you create to some degree the atmosphere um, that is appropriate to that day uh, and what's happening and what you're reporting on. Um, you often find that then they take that cue from you, and they start speaking in a more colorful, emotional, passionate way, which, as yeah. you said, leads to the best quotes. It comes again, it comes down to preparation. A good interview needs to be prepared. You can't just approach a person and say, so tell me what, what went on today? You know, yeah. Um, yeah. that person will go think, thinking, well, she obviously has no clue. Um, <laughs> but if you, yeah. if you, if you create a lead into that answer, um, you show that you have done your research. You, you, you give them a few pointers that makes them, the person you interview needs to feel like they're talking to you kind of on an eye level, even though they're not, they're, they're the expert and you interview them, but they need to feel um, reassured that somehow it is a, a discussion among equals. 
And you cannot have such a discussion if you have not done any reading, if you don't know what's going on, if you don't even know the terms. Um, sometimes they use special, you know, titles of an initiative. It, it, it pays off to, to drop these in. Yeah. Um, and one thing I noticed about your stories is that you always really found great anecdotes. And an anecdote is just a kind of like a little people story uh, that, that leads in to the theme of your story, whatever it is that you're writing about, particularly on features. Um, how do you choose your anecdotes? Or how do you choose a great anecdote for a story? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you, want, you, want, you want something new. You, you want to present a slice of the world that the reader hasn't seen before. You, you can't just create a cliche anecdote. You know, when when it's something that you've seen or heard or read many times before, it, you know, a very predictable story, that doesn't work. Um, I was tasked recently to, to help a, a startup in the disability space um, write a few sort of anecdotes. And they wanted me to, or they suggested, to write these stories about, you know, a child with disability that learns to walk again something like this or you know that that gets funding and then the right therapy and everything's fine again and i said this bores this bores me it's 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 not it's it's so predictable it is it's such a cliche story of you know someone is sick uh and gets funding or you know the right therapy and all of a sudden they're healed there must be more to it there must be a depth there must be some more surprise some some even um, a character that is not necessarily uh, black and white. S stories live of drama. No one knows better than you. You know, you you you're so good at teaching this. We need drama. We need the contrast. But there must be some more complex element to a character than just the black and white. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it is it is too boring. And so, when I choose anecdotes, I'm looking for that. I'm looking for the surprise element. I'm looking for. I remember doing a story on a a woman who had changed her careers, and she used to be a race car designer, and then started making croissants. Um, and you know, these type of very unusual twists where you go, "How's that possible? What a woman!" Um, mm. Something you haven't heard before. That's that's what makes a good anecdote for me. Yeah, yeah. And then you have to write it in such a way that just takes people into that scene and can almost visualize being there with this person as well, right? But not overdo it. I mean, the, the mm -hmm. worst stories, I mean, you, you see it, there, there is, you know it yourself when you read a story that just leaves you with a lot of color and no content. So you see mm -hmm. uh, someone describing the curtains and the, you know, the carpet and, you know, a, a flag in the wind and, you know, someone's taking a sip of their coffee and, <laughs> you know, a drag from the cigarette and there's yeah. wind rustling the leaves. You can add <laughs> lots of color. But it, it's not good. It's not good color. That's an excellent point. And it's something that I remember at, at the journal I used to, uh, when, I, when I would um, train people sometimes, I would um, bring that up because these, these, these anecdotes must dramatically lead into the substance of the story. You're not That's just right. describing a scene for the sake of it just because you're good at describing, uh, you know, details of, of, uh, for people to visualize. There has to be a dramatic entrance into the story so the, the theme seamless, sorry, the, the anecdote seamlessly opens the door 
to what it is that you're going to be talking about. That's right. So you need to know your thesis first. So every anecdote proves a point you're making. It is almost the, the illustration of a theoretical point of an argument, of one of the messages, of one of the theses. And um, what what I learned, what one of my uh, feature trainers told me once, and that was great guidance as well, because in economic reporting, you tend to meet a lot of managers and CEOs and people who, who tend to meet you in their office. And then you have no color, you, you know. Then ultimately what people do is then, They look outside the window and, you know, he stands there at the top of the 55th floor and, you know, a person like him obviously has uh, perspective because he's standing there every day looking out of the window. You know, that's not good color. They, you know, this feature trainer of mine encouraged us to always try to meet that manager outside of his office where the action happens. So say he is a petrol merchant, you would obviously meet him um, you know, ideally you would drive the petrol um, truck with him. So, and then he would, you could describe all the things that person is doing. Or, you know, if he's a baker, you would obviously meet him at four o'clock in the morning in the bakery where he bakes the bread and not somewhere in a cafe Mm. sitting outside of his um, environment. Um, Or if if it's about, you know, a point you make, um, an anecdote that relates to the past, you try to describe whatever pivotal moment you're trying to describe in your story by yeah by going back in time and making him feel the things again that he felt um mm. the thing the things he thought at the time so it's, it's all about um picking the right ingredients to 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 reinforce um the message that some of the the facts and and other writing of yours uh, will convey Mm-hmm. So we talked a lot about color there. Another big thing of kind of more advanced, sophisticated writing is that it it flows well. It's got rhythm, and it's well arranged. Um, what? How do you? How do you approach it? Because I know you can write in a way that, that that flows well. How how do you how do you think about writing in in that in that sense? How do you make it flow? I don't think about it. That's the thing. <laughs> this, this literally, this is like making. Is it music. like dancing? It's like where dancing. It's just, yes, um, yes. It's it's like making music, and 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 for those, you know, who who play an instrument, they know what it's like. Like you just, you make music, and and words have a melody, sentences have a melody, and mm. you know, I know I know a few people that don't relate to music. Um, one is an analyst. Uh, he's very good at crunching numbers. And he says he doesn't have a single musical bone in his body, which surprised me because I thought everyone must have some sense of music or, you know, appreciation for for that. But uh, I guess I'm not sure. I, don't, I, I can't properly answer this question because it is something that comes naturally to me. I mean, I dance, I, I do ballet. It's... It's just a rhythm that, um, yeah, that, that you have. And that's right. I, I mean, I try to teach it in various ways, but as you said, it's, it's really difficult to teach. But yet it's, it's a quality that makes a big difference to the actual quality of your writing. So it's so important 
but so hard to explain. There are some some hard rules, I guess. Uh, it is an alternation between long and short sentences. You don't want to um, write like three very long comma sentences after another. You want to break it up short, mm. short, long, short, long, long, short. Um, yeah, but you can't do that in a technical way because that doesn't necessarily give it rhythm, right, just by being shorter or being longer. You have to have something else, some kind of sensibility that hey this this piece of this this flows along like music yeah but it is something that i mean this was your very first question you know it's like did you always feel it in your soul maybe it mm. is the soulful writing and maybe it is something that maybe it is something that you can't 100 teach you gotta tap into your soul for that It has to have the heart. And that's, I mean, they keep talking about algorithms being able to write stories and poetry now. I wonder if they can. I wonder. They might craft something that sounds like poetry, but it will, I don't know. I don't know if it, re if it really taps into that depth that we have inside of yeah. us. It's, it's actually really, yeah, that's an excellent point. And I've, I've often wondered about that as well because I've seen, articles that are supposedly written by um, algorithms and there's just something soulless about it that you can't easily put your finger on but there's no there's never going to be a replacement for a human being looking at the world responding to it and creating some kind of form of expression in response to it I read I read, a, moment. I read a Leonard poem uh, Leonard Cohen poem yesterday by chance um, came across it and Man, he's got such poetry. He's got such rhythm. And um, I, I could... So he describes the longing for um, for a love that fulfills him. And he says, you know, he's bored. And and he describes the woman that he, he's longing for, but she seems to want to, you know... Um, She wants to be with other women and he says, you know, maybe this woman wants to live in a port town where there were perfect sweet rituals such as walking together at twilight, smoking cigarillos. And then he goes on and he says, listen to this, this is, this is the rhythm. I could have created such a woman out of the one or two women who loved me. But in those days, I had no taste for monsters, although I must say that they did. And it's this rhythm where That's you go, right. there's a surprise element in it and it mm. speaks like you can see his longing and his pain and his regret. Yeah. And, and this yes. is something that you cannot create with, a, with an algorithm because this right. is such a soul, this is a soul level. Mm. And which is why I also encourage students to, to read poetry or to read things like Shakespeare's plays where there is a, a very strong sense of of rhythm combined with the evocativeness of the writing. It's really, really powerful thing. And that's what kind of takes writing, even for, for journalistic writing, the best journalist that, 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 that I saw or uh, encountered ha un had a kind of basic understanding of this, even if it's not something they can clearly articulate, well, this is how I do it. Mm. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure. I think you can bring it out. I think it's maybe not something you can practice, And this is maybe what you asked initially. It's something that you fall into if you allow it, right? Yeah. It is something that you you can maybe, you can ignite. It is something you can ignite. It's not something you can practice with sheer rigor and persistence. It is almost the opposite. It is by letting go and by feeling into it. Mm. So fascinating. Now, we are 
I know you've been an editor and a writer at various times in your life. Which which one of those do you prefer being? Uh, probably prefer, I prefer being a writer. I have much more, <laughs> this is very honest now, I have a lot more insecurity around writing. I'm, I'm a lot more confident when I'm editing. Um, maybe because writing becomes very personal at a time, it's much more painful. And, and therefore, criticism hurts a lot more. If you, if, you, if you really write honestly and you put so much, so much work and effort into this and then you write it down and then someone tells you, well, that's not good enough, like try again, try harder, it hurts, you know, even though it shouldn't. We shouldn't take it personally. But it mm. is because every creative would tell you that. It is, it is the creative game where you, you really tap into that thing inside and pour yourself out on paper. Editing mm. is, you know, I, I, it is much more technical. Yeah. Uh, and as a writer, I mean, we always self-edit. W whatever we write, I have my own scissors in my head. Um, mm. But yeah, I'm still working as an editor and it is, it is, it's much more about helping people who are not very attuned to the writing process and to building strong messaging to help them improve uh, what they've put out on paper and just cut words here, add something there. Yeah. And what do you think is the biggest problem that occurs in the writing of journalists who you edit? What do you think people suffer from most when it comes to writing? Uh, news stories and features? Uh, redundancy is a big problem. Um, I most often can cut a lot of words that aren't needed. How about the clarity of, of thinking, clarity of thought? Clarity of thinking is often there, but what I found in the editing I'm doing is that they can't find the right words to uh, put the exact thought on paper. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I had to edit something for a charity organization, and it is about improving um, school food in Australia. And the, the sentence that I read there, they wanted to, they used the jargony term, creating change or better food choices for future generations. Now, that sounds grand, right? Like for future generations, who doesn't want to, you know, do something like that? And I, and I looked at it and I said, well, but this is not for the unborn children of, you know, future generations. <laughs> you are changing the world today. If you, if you advocate for healthier food in schools, this is, this is not future generations. This is today. Mm -hmm. and, and so you, you notice that people kind of have an idea of what they want to say, but then they get carried away by what they hear, what other people talk about. And it sounds kind of good, does sound nice to talk about future generations, but it doesn't necessarily make sense. It's just jargon. And, mm. you know, it must be painful for them because I'm very rigorous then and I, and I point these things out and I say, well, we can't write this. It's not true. Um, mm. and, <laughs> but that makes better writing. This is the clarity that maybe you, you allude to. This makes stronger writing to test everything you write to be very um, conscious of everything you put on paper because sometimes, and we all fall into this trap, we, we put things down just because they sound nice without thinking about it. Mm, mm, yeah, it's that attention to detail, going over it again and again, rethinking everything, uh, being open to that. But you mentioned earlier that, like, like, like many journalists, including myself, you, know, you can suffer from insecurity and self-doubt about your own work. Yeah. What, 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 do you, what do you mean by that? How does that affect you? Uh, um, it's not about the story. 
you know there's a strong story and and I know you know you, you can share that feeling I know there's a story because I found it so interesting interesting enough to keep me working on it for days it's more about how do you how you deliver the story and that's where it becomes very personal everyone can tell the story in their own way in other words there is no there is no truth there's no unified formula for how to tell the story which is what i learned when i wrote the book we we had to at some point emancipate ourselves from the demands of the publishing industry some publishers told us but yeah we would prefer the book to be this or couldn't you leave out the second part or why don't you do this can't you add boxes so that people could you know fill in their self help content and and we felt no this is not what we want to do this is this is the story how we want to tell it and mm. and you know as an author you have that freedom when you work for a client or when you work for a newspaper you often don't and it can make you very insecure it can me make me very insecure um, if there's a chain of editors that will then uh, scrutinize everything you've written and question why you've written it this way. And, well, you know, I have a reason. I know I have written it this way, not because I, I just felt like it, but because I have thought about it. And mm. and that, that could have and still can fill me with self-doubt if I have a very um, confident editor then who, who questions what I've done. Um, and and sometimes it becomes very subjective. They just want it their way because they think it's it's nicer how how they tell the story. And mm. then you know I can get very angry because I go, well, this is your story then, but it's not the way I want to tell the story. <laughs> um, you know, you you yeah. can get you know one story and five journalists and get six different stories. Right. That one story. Right. That's that's frustrating. Yeah. It's it, it's part of it. Yeah, I, I can. It's part of the job. I can well imagine. Um, you mentioned your book there. Um, and I'm really curious, um, as someone who's writing a book myself, um, I wondered what's the main difference that you found between writing a news article and writing a book? Um, well, writing a book, you, as I said, you have much more freedom. You can, um, you're not, you know, you, you're only accountable to yourself and, mm. and, and how about the process of writing it, though? Is it similar? It's something that requires a lot more planning. So you know, you know, a book can't be... I mean, some people are probably good and can write a book in two months or a month. <laughs> uh, it's mm. taken us probably one and a half years to write, uh, which we heard was still fast. I know people and they've worked on books for seven years. Um, so it's just that, that stamina you need. And um, you need to be Isn't very... it harder to organize? Is it harder to organize? Because you've got a lot more pages, a lot more material. Yeah, sure. You've got like, it's, it's, it's just a really long research piece. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, like a really long feature article. And, mm. and it, it gives you the freedom to, to, to explain facets that you wouldn't have been able to explain in a, in a, in a short newspaper article where you maybe only have 800 words. Um, now you, you may have 80,000, you know, uh, mm. it's a whole different story. And then the same rigor applies. You need to still think about the reader first. You can't just write whatever comes to mind. You still have to make sure the reader can follow the narrative and um, is engaged by the narrative. That is so important. I think mm. from what I observe as well, um, when I'm dealing or when I'm editing people who are not journalists, they only view the story 
from their perspective, they forget about the reader. They have something like, I have something in my head that I want to tell, that I want to tell the world, and now I'm just writing down what I know. But they forget about the recipient. So you, a good writer makes sure that the reader feels satisfied with the with the narrative and with the way the story flows. It's not about you anymore. It's not about you. You are the vehicle. You have done the research, but you need to write it for the recipient. The recipient is the one who needs to enjoy this. It's not about you. And I guess I haven't... I haven't changed that thinking. For me, it was the same. Whether I'm writing a newspaper article or a book, it's the reader first. It's it's my research, but it's the reader first. I think that's an excellent, excellent way to approach it. I think of it in terms of my intention. So I have an intention, but which could be to inform as in a newspaper article, or it could be to persuade as in a book or, you know, some other type of writing. But I'm trying to inform or I'm trying to... Uh, persuade a particular type of people and I never forget that everything I'm writing to fulfill my intention has to connect with the people who I'm trying to uh, impact mm. I heard um, I'm not sure if you did this with your with your book or the book that you're writing right now um, Tim Ferriss who who's the author of the four-hour work week He said he wrote the book with his, I think his brother in mind or his best friend. So he imagined that one person, instead of making it in an anonymous crowd that he would speak to, he really imagined that one person that he would write the book for and he and that person would read it. And I like the idea. I haven't necessarily done it um, <sighs> when I was writing the book, but it's, an, it's a nice idea to um, imagine that, that one reader reading what you've written. Yeah, same. I've heard that too. It is a, it's a fascinating point you bring out. But like you, I don't. I, I write for the crowd that I am thinking about. I find that if I'm trying to write for one person, a kind of a dishonesty gets in because I'm not really trying to write for that one person. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm trying to write for this group of people. And so it's hard to visualize a group. You don't sort of see them standing in a crowd in front of a, you know, in, a, in some kind of um, auditorium. But you just have to have a feeling for the type of people that you're writing for. And that means you know how to tailor the content, how to tailor the, the tone, the pace, um, and everything else around it to, 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 to connect deeply Absolutely. with those particular people. It's so important. I mean, what you just said, it's, you know, that shapes how you how you write you know even the the if you use a as a friend of mine says a five dollar word or a 50 cent word you know you can if you speak to an expert audience obviously you wouldn't dumb down everything you write but if you speak to the lay person which i'm doing because i see it as my job to make complicated things um sound simple or explain it in in, in very in layman terms um, you need to bear that in mind. You, you cannot overwhelm a reader with um, knowledge. The Economist, for example, the magazine, they do it brilliantly. They never um, assume that the reader knows. They explain everything. They spell everything out, which is very nice. It's, it's mm. And um, it's not dumbing down in that case. I mean, because no. you're not making it um, too easy for, you know, someone who knows about the topic. Because And the trick is when you've done it well is when the person who is an expert and a person who is not an expert can get equal enjoyment out of the way you've you've written it. And there is a way of doing that, which is what we were trying to do at the, at the Wall Street Journal because we knew we got some people who are, you know, financial experts and other people who were just, you know, interested in business. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and you need to you need to you need to almost visualize that audience, especially. I mean, when we wrote the book, we knew that we probably wouldn't be telling news to people who work in that industry, and we kept reminding ourselves. But we're not writing for them. We're writing for my mum or my brother, who's a physiotherapist who who understands nothing about, um, you know, the the gig economy, and that helped because. It means that your writing still has a place. It, it may not be interesting for a certain group of readers, but for another group of readers, it is highly interesting. And, and why did you choose to write about this particular subject at this time? What was it that made your gave you that burning curiosity? Oh, I guess we were, you know, we were both working at a consulting firm. I was the editor and he's an analyst, but he's he's from Italy originally. And we kept talking about his home country where he... He said, oh, you know, he was living in Singapore at the time. And he said, oh, I, I wish I could go back home, but there's no work. And, you know, Europe, after the global financial crisis, has suffered. Many of the Mediterranean countries have similar problems. There's just, you know, as a young person in, in Italy, Spain, Greece, um, in these countries, it's very hard to find stable work. But when we started looking into it, you know, it is the same problem everywhere. Even in Australia, a very wealthy country that came out of the global financial crisis unscathed, we have now um, every second person in this country is not in a full-time full-time stable employment anymore. And so we, you know, for me, it, it, again, it started with this question, my goodness, where is this world headed? Where, what are we going to do in 10 years' time? How are we going to work if now everyone talks about automation? It, it, it probably started with a fear. It started with an un, a deep unease about the future and um, a notion that I don't understand this anymore. The world has become so fast and complex. And, um, you know, I, I, I just simply, it's this, this notion of what's going on and how can we get out of here? And it started with this question. And then, it, you know, we were curious enough to keep going and, and found amazing answers. That's the, that's the good bit, you know. We, we enjoyed this research because we learned so much. So in terms of process, you had the question. You had the burning curiosity about something. You were, felt the, the fear of this change. And then you kind of had this idea, why don't we write about this? And that becomes the idea. And then you have to sketch out how to, you know, what to cover, what to research what to get more information on. How, how, how did that process, I mean, how did you handle that process? What was that like? Yeah, look, I was, I was lucky um, in a way. My co-author is a former McKinsey um, analyst and, and he's good at strategy. And uh, I guess we complemented each other very well in, in this regard. He, he was very good at coming up with sort of Google Docs where we mapped out our ideas and, you know, we had like chapter one, this is what we want to prove and this is what we want to find out. And, and then we just, yeah, like what I said earlier, we, we started with the questions. So if I want to find out X, if I want to find out why people in the Mediterranean countries aren't employing, you know, uh, you know, someone who comes fresh out of university on long-term contracts anymore, why is that so? And the same in Australia. So, so what, why are we moving into this weird economy where people are working on contracts and casual employment? And then we started mapping out the questions and also for each chapter, kind of main points that we wanted to prove. And we took it from there. It was a good skeleton. It was a great scaffolding to come back to later on. Mm. So it's interesting that you had the architecture or the, yeah, the scaffolding 
there in place and then you just added the the, the, the different layers on top of it like um, so you, you did come up with the structure quite early on. Yeah, that was I think that was the starting point. But bear in mind, it is a nonfiction book with um, you know a lot of anecdotes and people stories, but it's nonfiction. Um, mm. I have a friend and she's writing a, a fiction book right now, and that requires um, a different setup. I think she has to think about the narrative and intertwining um, narrative strands and introducing the protagonists on, on different layers. So I, I guess that's much more sophisticated and, and complex. For us, it's, yeah, I mean, in a way, maybe it was a bit like um, writing a, a very big newspaper essay or, um, yeah, feature story. When you look at your own writing and you've done a lot of different types now, do you still find an area that you identify as you could, you could improve upon? Is there any area of your writing that you would consider weakness? Oh, for sure. Like there's always things you can improve on. And as I said early onwards, um, I, I still find I'm a bit too slow for this fast world today. Uh, online news journalism is, is hectic. And there is a, it's very tricky to find the balance between um, being thorough and being fast. I also find I'm also, um, there's a friend of mine I'm helping, he's running a startup and in the startup world, it's often this, it's good enough. It's good enough. Just get it out. It's good enough. <laughs> and I, I sometimes struggle to let go of, of, of something that I don't find good enough yet. Mm. It's, it's, right. it's mediocre at best and, yeah. and they, they don't care, you know? And so you just got to detach yourself a bit from that. So, but what I, what I learned, um, more and more in the last couple of years was, um, writing good headlines thanks to, um, a collective of copywriters I'm working with and and these guys are phenomenal they they come from the advertising industry and you know they deliver punchlines and it's almost like stand-up comedy you know where you got to be very mm. spontaneous and and just come up with a good joke and mm. and writing compelling headlines is an art in itself sometimes you know what they what they taught me is you sometimes have to try out 60 different headlines before you find one that is the the you know, the amazing slogan that everyone talks about. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm enjoying this. It's, it's nice. You, you never stop learning. This is, this is language. It's a living thing. It's a living thing. Yeah. So finally, Vera, I just wanted to ask, um, like, what kind of writing do you enjoy reading most? Is it, is it journalism? Is it fiction? Or is it nonfiction of a particular type? Uh, I enjoy um, short stories most. My favorite writer is probably Alice Munro, Canadian short story writer. Um, I'm in love with her writing style Why? and her content. She's very dense and she um, she's very poignant in the way she describes situation, human interaction, um, human experiences in in both color and relatability and um, creating vivid scenes in your head that speak to you maybe on the soul level that we talked about earlier where you feel you recognize what she's saying but she's putting it into words that you would not be able to put into words yourself mm. so when you read something and it speaks to you at this level where you go yes i know what this feels like and i've experienced it before but here it is she's written it down in words and it makes sense it helps me explain myself or the world around me um i find this absolutely stunning when someone has this ability and i i i wish i could um 
yeah, bring this out in myself even more. I like nonfiction and fiction alike. Um, I'm, I love reading a lot. I love poetry as well, but um, I must say I have a knack for short stories. I love short stories. Awesome. And just finally, um, your book, Flow Generation, a survival guide for... For our unpredictable lives. For our unpredictable lives. Um, where can people get this uh, this great book if they if they if they're interested in, in learning more about the gig economy? Yeah, it's um uh, look you can get it at bookstores in Sydney in uh, in Paddington for example. But if you don't live in Sydney, you can get it online. Obviously in Australia at all the major online book selling pages in the US, you know via Amazon. It's uh, yeah, and it's it's a. Uh, it's it's not an attempt to explain the world, but it's um, it's giving people a good perspective on what's going on at the moment and why we shouldn't be afraid when facing all this uncertainty. Because obviously, the world around us is um, is stranger than than ever before with COVID and uh, all this new technology emerging. But we tell a lot of stories of people who have found a recipe to deal with this uncertainty and. It's it's almost like sometimes I pick it up myself and and I have to remind myself of all the um, the the positive pieces that I have forgotten myself. So it's almost like it, it can encourage you to to keep going with whatever you feel inspired to do. You know, even if it's a career in journalism and and everyone tells you that there is no career in journalism because journalism is dead, that's not true. If you feel strongly about it, keep going and. And the book we've written will will certainly reassure you. Thank you, Vera. I'm sure that uh, the listeners who've heard about your experiences um, have found this discussion extremely enlightening, particularly if they're interested in in a career in journalism or as an author. Thanks, Vera, for for joining us um, on the Alchemy of Writing podcast. Pleasure, Shani. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Shani Raja, and you've been listening to the Alchemy of Writing podcast. I have several online courses on Udemy and LinkedIn that teach you basically how to write with the style and flair of the best journalists in the world. For more details about my courses and to gain access to various free writing resources, please visit my website shaniraja.com.